host, Karen. We're so glad you're here joining us. Walla Moms is the podcast where we say everything that you can't say in Portland. You can find us on Twitter at Walla Moms Pod. If you want to support the podcast, please tell a friend. Give us a good rating on iTunes, like and subscribe on whatever podcast service you find us on. Recently, we received a message on Twitter from OR Hunter. That is the handle asking if we're part of Antiva BLM or if the title is some sort of parody or joke. We explained this in episode five, but for, for a brief summary, I was a far left Democrat who supported BLM and frankly, probably to some extent, the Walla Moms in the initial days, I was never a member of Antifa, never supported Antifa, but I certainly found myself defending them to my centrist and right of center friends saying things like any enemy of a white supremacist is a friend of mine. I still absolutely believe that. But I now know from living here in Portland that Antifa's purpose is to absolutely and totally tear down the city and that their response to speech they don't like is violence. And I abhor that philosophy. So really, with the title, I'm kind of making fun of myself. I mean, I'm, I am. I'm totally making fun of myself. I practice in the federal courthouse that Antifa destroyed. I'm a trial lawyer. I worked as an assistant prosecutor in King County back when Seattle actually prosecuted crimes. So that's where I'm at. This Walla Moms Mom is unwoke. I've been as they would say, red-pilled and unwoke. Today on the episode, we have high-profile professional Jennifer back, and we're gonna talk about absolutely everything. We begin with the show with talking about my previous far-lefty bona fides, where I talk about how I am sipping out of my Kamala Harris coffee mug that says History Maker on it. We go through Portland corruption, and I think you're gonna like this episode. Here's Jennifer and myself. I, uh, my, this is my proof of my, my pre-podcast wokeness. My Kamala Harris mug. My history maker, Kamala Harris mug. <laughs> oh, I have, um, that I still have. I have two boss lady, like, baseball shirts, like, with pictures of Hillary Clinton or, or like, the notorious HRC. Yes. My license plate was HRC forever. Um... I have all these fuck, I have fuck Trump hats, fuck Trump shirts, (laughs) everything. That is right. Jennifer is back on the podcast. We had so much great feedback about our last episode with high profile, professional, Portland native, multiple generation, Portlander, Jewish mom, Jennifer giving us the inside information on corruption in Portland, Oregon. We got such great feedback on that. On Twitter, SatsBeFree, S-A-T-S-F-R-E-E-X-M-R on Twitter, said to everybody on Twitter, listen to the episode of this podcast and learn how corrupt Portland city politics have become. We also heard from Governor of Oregon, Ishmi, Twitter handle at 9,000 elephants, who said on Twitter, listening to Portland leftist lady having a red pill breakdown on Wall of Moms pod. And that leftist lady is back. Jennifer is back to have another red pill breakdown with me here on Wall of Moms pod. We have the Wall of Moms who became unwoke And we are back for your entertainment value. As you know, I am a trial lawyer who practices in the city of Portland. 
Jennifer is a high profile professional. She also, like me, resides in the city of Portland. And like me, she works downtown, although I think she frequents downtown far more than I do. I try to stay away from downtown lately. Longtime listeners already know this, but going back to my conversation with O.R. Hunter on Twitter, I explained to him, I was a far left Dem who supported BLM and the Wall of Moms in the initial days. I quickly moved away from that when it disintegrated into riots and decided that the real Portland Wall of Moms needed to speak up for kids being in school unmasked. This podcast is a reclaiming of the Walla Moms title. And obviously we're speaking out for more than that. We're speaking about the corruption of the city of Portland, the corruption of far left politics, the short-sightedness, lack of nuance and reasonableness involved in the culture of wokeness in Portland. And for the record, I've never been a member of Antifa. I practice in the federal courthouse that they destroyed. I worked as an assistant prosecutor in King County back when Seattle actually prosecuted crimes. So that's my background. For those of you who are newer listeners or who haven't been listening for very long, I also received a direct message from Susan GR37441255 on Twitter. Her handle is one smoke and hot mess. You lit it, you smoke it. And she resides downtown. She lives two and a half blocks from the federal courthouse in a Section 8 building that houses elderly, disabled residents. She says, not once has the city ever addressed downtown residents, and we are suffering. I know I am and have since night one of the riots. I'm struggling with severe depression, anxiety off the chart, severe weight loss. I lost 70 pounds in six months. I can no longer sleep. I'm hypervigilant. I'm suicidal daily, yet I hang on. I've emailed every member of our city leadership about my issues with no response. However, I did get through the Hardesty's office who gaslit me. I have the last eight minutes of that conversation on video. I've told every leader they are listed on a suicide note that I'll shut a bridge down to get their attention. I have lots of crazy thinking. You know what, Susan? Thank you for reaching out. Of course you have a lot of crazy thinking. You live in downtown Portland. Please seek professional help to the extent that you're able and know that we love and support you here at the podcast. We really support you reaching out. And I'm going to turn it over to Jennifer, who's going to talk about why politicians should not be activists. Politicians should not be activists. I mean, and and when um, there was a part in our last podcast, and I really liked we talked about that, where I think one of us gave an example. But, um, you know... When you want something like, for, for if, if it's like your dream or your vision or whatever, um, and then you're in charge of deciding whether or not it's implemented, I just, it's, Kamala won't win. I hope she's realistic enough to know that she's oh, still unpopular. Oh, she pulls terribly. She's, yeah. she's so fake when she does these like things with constituents or kids. It's just like cringeworthy. She told a story somebody asked so how are you how did you become an activist and she says well when I was little my family and I attended a civil rights march and my mom asked what I wanted and needed and I said freedom and Martin Luther King had a story I think it was yeah it was in a 1965 Playboy magazine article and Dr. Martin Luther King told the same story he said a white 
Birmingham police officer asked a little black girl what she wanted, and she replied, freedom. And I find it incredibly bizarre that by coincidence, Kamala Harris has the exact same memory. I mean, the people who defend her, when I bring that up, say, well, she probably just heard that story from her family members who probably plagiarized it and she's passing it down. But it's so, it's still so cringe. And the way she says it when she has a, uh, she says her R in a babyish way where she says freedom, it just it makes my skin crawl. Oh. I mean, she, yeah, she's, and, and I guess the so phony baloney. hate each other. Yeah, she's so funny, and and they. I, I guess there's like lots of strife between her administration and Biden's administration is the word. Um, so I mean, I yeah, I will never ever support Trump. I I just think I, just based on principle, I I can't. I I, I, can't, I what I wish would happen is that people would um, at least say like, listen, I think the guy's a, a douchebag, but I'm tired of liberal policies and he's accomplishing what I want and as long as he's doing that and it's better for my family I don't care I wish they would just say say that like I somebody that I went to high school with who's a very big Trump supporter I on Facebook once I said listen can we do this I will tell you something that I am totally against with the left if you will tell me something that you're totally against with Trump and so I gave a like real issue, which was unions. But I think unions once upon a time had a purpose and now I think they're much of the demise of, of this country. His answer was uh, DACA. I'm like, give me a, everybody. I mean, other than complete lunatics support the dreamers. You know, like I, it was such a softball answer. And I'm like, He's just so dug in, and both sides. I mean, I was with a, I've tried, you know, someone on Twitter said, just tap your toes in, like, see what your friends, you know. I was with two different friends in the last week. They, they are, they find excuses for everything on the left, just like the right does. I mean, about uh, Governor Brown running all over DC maskless. They didn't think that was an issue. It's, it, it's like bright people are brainwashed. Why didn't they think that was it? What was their dis, um, justification? Because masks, it's the most illogical reason, because mask, the mask mandate isn't in place in D.C. And so when you said, yeah, but she clearly doesn't believe that masks save lives and doesn't have data to support her position for the mandate on all of her citizens, otherwise she would have been masked up and saving herself from COVID despite the vaccination status of everybody there because even dogs know that vaccinated people get and spread COVID now. What did they say to that? Nothing. I mean, they just, you know, but I've just had a lot of situations lately where I feel like some of my friendships are ending and, um, Mm. I wonder what, I wonder what it would be like, what the difference would be like if my friends were right of center. I wonder if there would be a difference. Um, I think, I mean, when you look at this, the, all the, the polls where uh, the left who are polled you know, overwhelmingly say they would never be friends with someone who's on the right, where the right who are polled don't say that. 
Um, and what I see on Twitter where, I mean, sometimes people disagree with me on Twitter when I post things that I don't agree with on the right, but nobody tells me to fuck off. Nobody mocks me. Nobody shames me on the left on the few occasions where, you know, I've had an Oregonian article and someone I don't know, uh, like either like says, yeah, right. You're a centrist. Centrist just mean Trump or, you know, it's a totally different animal. And I just wondered about that. Can we talk about Hardesty? Oh, today? please, yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, when Hardesty was running, I may have told you this before, I think I did, you know, she did these super childish, childish moves against her opponent, Loretta Smith, including um, having uh, a man who had sexually harassed Loretta Smith uh come on stage with her and just debating, so just cringeworthy. Uh, the media buried this issue with the NAACP where she diverted funds when she was the president to her own business. Uh, they buried her financial history because they were so desperate to have, you know, a, a black woman with a progressive agenda in. And so they wrote what they wanted to write. Tell me about the That's diverting what- funds. December 15, 2021, Oregonian article. Portland Commissioner Joanne Hardesty defends fiscal integrity on public funds amid lawsuits over personal debt. And of course, this is referring to her her lawsuit against her by Bank of America, wherein Bank of America claims she owes more than $16,000 on a pair of defaulted credit card accounts. In this Oregonian article, Joanne Hunterstee refers to herself as a budget hawk. Oh, I know. I saw that. I saw that. Um, so it won't let me uh, open it because it's the Tribune and I don't have a description, okay. but it says there were accusations that she stole money from the NAACP. Um, oh, interesting. And my, recoll- my recollection is that she sort of played it off as it was a mistake, but that she paid the money back. Um, I... I cannot fathom that she is suing. I mean, oh, I see. Loretta wants- Smith accuses Joe. So it was an accusation by Loretta Smith, who was by her opponent, right? Joanne's Joanne Hardesty's opponent, and this is from the Portland Tribune, September eighteenth, twenty eighteen. Smith accuses Hardesty of stealing from the NAACP. I see. Portland City Council candidate Loretta Smith has accused her opponent, Joanne Hardesty, of embezzling money from the Portland chapter of the NAACP when she was president. Smith, a Multnomah County commissioner, made the accusation in a press release. It was based on an OPB, on an Oregon public broadcasting story, that said Hardesty received over $13,000 from the NAACP in 2017 and did not report it on her taxes. And so Smith accused Joanne Hardesty of embezzling money from the NAACP and asked Joanne to return the money. Hardesty received $3,300 for expenses and $10,000 in grant funds for work on a conference, including a $9,000 check she wrote to herself, which was not approved by the board or signed by the treasurer in violation of national and chapter policies. The check was made out to Hardesty's consulting business, Consult Hardesty. Although OPB did not specifically say 
that Hardesty broke any laws. Smith said it's illegal for a nonprofit officer to write checks to themselves. Yeah, wow, I didn't know about this. Thank you. That was before the election. Right, and, and she you know, still won. Was, she still, if this had been a white woman or a white man, or I think anybody other than a black person in Portland with our obsession, it, it would have it would have done the men. I mean, Loretta Smith has a very solid track record uh, as a politician. I mean, I, I, I certainly voted for her. Um, I don't know that, I mean, she's my favorite, but I was never in favor of Hardesty. I, I view Hardesty as another you daily. Yes. Oh, she, or, or worse. Which she is, which she is. And then, you know, she's sued by a bank for not paying her credit card debt. And 10 days later, she files a $5 million or whatever lawsuit against an entity that in her job she oversees. I mean, I, I know she's not in charge of the police bureau. Let me know if my dogs are too loud. They'll settle down in a second. Well, she wanted um, to be. Remember when she demanded that Ted Wheeler hand the police yeah. bureau over to her? Yeah. So would she have still sued? I mean, so she's asking for $1 from the city, but it doesn't matter. Who do you think pays out? these? I mean, it, it's all under the same thing. She's taking money away from somewhere. Well, and we're all going to pay to defend this. Yeah. Yeah, and her lawyers are good lawyers. Yeah, They're Steve Bruschetto's a great lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. I can't believe he took that case. He is a fantastic lawyer. I'm sure on a contingency. Well, the other thing that she's so stupid to not think through is that she's going to go through discovery. And there's shit that's going to get leaked. You know, I mean, her... If she is a gambling addict, I mean, if it turns out that she's a gambling addict, then she's going to do the whole addiction thing. And I, you know, and I went to treatment and, you know, she'll be forgiven. Um, but remember, she was at a gambling casino when she got in that Uber when she called the police. She was headed to Alani, right? Mm-hmm. Or heading back, I think. Heading back, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a woman who doesn't have any managerial experience, any to the level of being a city council uh, member of this size, who has a history of financial impropriety, who uh, embraces and, uh, and asks for conflict with the police, um, who says insightful things like what she, whatever she said in the Rittenhouse verdict, who's now suing a Portland police agency in the middle of her term and planning on running again. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know what to say on that. I do think, I mean, if next door is any indicator, she's not going to win. And I, I do think given what, uh, how, how swiftly, uh, the voters voted you daily out, I think that's, a good sign. My concern is that she has two really strong candidates running against her, and I keep meaning to find out if it's possible for one of them to run against Ryan. I don't know if it's based on where you live, or do you know? Who, if it's not based on where you live, and that's one of the criticisms of the city council, is that they're not, they don't represent districts. I wonder if, do you have any idea who is running against Dan Ryan? Yes, a woman who is as far left as um, Hardesty. And I think she was one of the women who signed uh, the letter uh, calling 
people from Portland, a black money, right wing, racist, blah, blah, blah. She's, she's now serving the interim term for Tina Kotek because Tina Kotek had to re- resign as uh, a, as a, a conflict. She's on some commission now. I see Jim, Jamila Dozier, Dozer, Dozier. She's, she is a quote unquote Portland housing advocate running against Dan Ryan. I, what she is, sounds what does that worse. Look like? Yeah, exactly. She appears to be an African American woman, and she says, born and raised in and around San Francisco. <laughs> no surprise there, uh, San Franciscan. She liked what this is. Uh, so I'm reading from uh, Portland Mercury, October 13th, 2021, and the headline is Q&A with Jamila Dozier, the Portland housing advocate running against Dan Ryan. And she says she felt like Portland was doing a better job of caring for the, as she calls them, unhoused than San Francisco. And she did a master's in higher ed at Lewis and Clark. Uh, She is the East Portland policy coordinator for the Portland Housing Bureau. She is running for city council because she wants to work on, I'm sure she'd probably say houselessness. Uh, work on homelessness. But I don't understand how she's distinguishing herself from Dan Ryan because Dan Ryan's focus is getting all these people into these disgusting pods that he calls safe rest shelters and sprinkling them throughout the neighborhoods. I mean, what could be more homeless friendly than taking literally the worst of the worst, the ones that, that the... And under the ordinance itself are called high-impact homeless people who are engaged in crime and open-air drug abuse and putting them in neighborhoods throughout the city of Portland. I don't know what could be more pro-homeless. I I don't understand how she... If she's left of him, I mean, what is she going to do? Mandate that we all build extensions on our homes and, and... put these people in there. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that would be left of Dan Ryan. Oh, yes. And did I tell you about the town hall that he did? I heard snippets about it from you on Twitter, but I'd like to hear more. So it was a joint town hall with Lisa Reynolds, who's a state representative, who's my state representative. Is she the pediatrician? Yes. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because she asked to have a meeting with me when she was running, I think, thinking, you know, wanting me to kind of put the word out endorsing her. And so she's like, you know, what, what do you want to talk about? And I said, you know, I know you're at a state level, but I do believe the state, um, is partially responsible, could do something about it. The growing homeless problem in Portland is out of control. And I want to know what you're what you're thinking about, you know, what your plan is on that. She totally punted, and I, as I suspected, said, you know, it's a city issue, her hands are tied. Even though, you know, there's an issue about uh, o, ODOT land 
and the city, which is the city's excuse as to why they can't clear camps that are on state land, um, she, she didn't say anything. So I hear about this town hall. They say, if you want to ask questions, you have to send them in advance. I jumped through all the hoops. I asked all of these questions. I got in on time. They didn't take any questions. He said nothing for an hour. Dan Ryan said the same thing. It was just the same generic um, script. The old, Lisa Reynolds asked him what the plan was to screen people like for criminal histories. And he said, well, people have, we're not gonna screen because probation officers will be able to take care of that. That's their plan. So I guess, I think what he was implying is if you're a sex offender, you know, you have to register your address so that who, who cares? I mean, if you're still having- They're in a fucking tent. Right. I mean, these people that he's quote unquote referring to the safe rest shelters are in tents. I don't think they're in touch with their POs. I, I don't right. know. I'm not an expert on that, but it's just a, just a guess. Yeah. They're not from here. I mean, did you see that uh, so a guy tried to kidnap a six-year-old in the Pearl the, the other day? I mean, what the fuck? I did see I, that. A kid not, walking with his dad. A six-year-old. I just... And so... I was so pissed off after this meeting. I mean, my, my husband was kind of staying away from me. I was so pissed off. I sent an email to Lisa Reynolds' staff saying, you know, you guys said there were going to be questions. They sent me back some bullshit. Um, he said nothing. And so here's what I want Portland to understand about this plan, this brilliant plan, is that let's assume that they actually get six of these villages off the ground. Maybe there's 60 people, 60 to 100 in each. So less than 1,000 people. Let's say that all works out. They have no plan for uh, stopping other people from setting up encampments as soon as they get rid of the first batch. They have no plan for that. They have no plan to put security in, in locations that frequently have campers. There is no um, rules. It's low barrier. So you don't have to be sober. You don't have to have a uh, criminal history and you don't have to have a legitimate referral. They imply that it's a referral from a social worker that's working with someone. The referral is someone filling out a piece of paper and saying, bring this to the safe rest village. That's it. What the fuck? I mean, what they should be focusing on is a deterrent. I'm so sorry about my dog. Well, and under the ordinance, the refer the ordinance for the safe rest villages specifically says the people who will be referred are high impact people. It mandates that you take the people at Cleveland High School sharpening their machetes and shooting up in front of high school kids and put them in safe rest villages in people's neighborhoods. That's how they plan to solve this. I know. And yeah, really, and they're, they're planning to solve it to get people like you and you and me and other professionals who, I don't know if you're downtown right now where we're recording this. I'm not. I mean, my husband's downtown, but I don't go downtown anymore. I don't go to my office because it's too scary because... Uh, my husband's caught burglars red-handed in our office multiple times 
and I don't want to be there when they're the next time they come in there. I just don't want any part of it. And I don't want to see it. I don't want to step over the feces. I don't want to step over the needles. I don't, there was a nude man living in a tent, um, nude who would pop out in front of me and my kids. And then there was a couple having sex on a mattress for two weeks Ugh. on the corner, open air mattress, fucking on a mattress. So th this is the kind of stuff I don't want to pass anymore to get to work because it is so, of course it's traumatizing for these people, but we, this city is forcing all of us to live in these people's trauma, to live right. with these people in their trauma and watch and experience their trauma on a daily basis and be mixed up and rolled up in it. And so I'm just not going down there anymore, but they're those the 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 idea that they're going to try to get us back to downtown and our employees spending money and the way that they're going to do it is take those people the people sharpening their machetes in front of the high schools the people fucking on mattresses out in downtown and put them in our neighborhoods it it should people should be furious it's sh it's shocking to me how little people know about this there are very well, few people and that's why these saviors have normalized the problem where I'm, I'm so tired of hearing NIMBY this, NIMBY that. A NIMBY is someone who opposes a low-income housing apartment to feed into your kid's school. A NIMBY is someone who opposes a waste uh, disposal plant in their, in their neighborhood, um, shit like that. You're not a NIMBY because you will oppose people committing crimes, having sex, shooting up in your neighborhood, and the city not doing anything about it. But it's become this normalized thing that if you say anything anti-homeless, you're a NIMBY. I'm much more anti-city officials than I am anybody on the street. It's it's horrible, it's sad, but you know what? Hooper, I would bet if you called Hooper right now, they have beds open. And for people that don't know what Hooper is, Hooper Detox, it's been in Portland for 30 or 40 years. It's a short-term place that you can go for free to um, to dry out, to, to withdraw in a safe way with staff there. And if you are committed, the Hooper people will then transition you into inpatient treatment. And from there on a path to stability and housing and all of that. Why is nobody talking about that? I had a client or knew of someone who the same day they called Hooper, they were, they were in. Um, why is that not why is that not known? Well, and what's odd is when they cleared out the Laurelhurst camp, Wheeler said, we've asked every single person in this camp if they want to go to right. a shelter and we're trying to we we're willing to transport them there. And there's room. And and more than half said no. We don't want to go. And they just moved on and camps, camped elsewhere. I mean, presumably, they clearly just went and camped side. elsewhere. Yes. But he, nobody focused on that. It was so, no. they just, the article just glossed over it. Like, their space, they don't want to go, moving on. And, and I was pr profoundly shocked that in the comments on Twitter, in public discourse on Nextdoor, that nobody said, well, wait a minute here. Why aren't we compelling them to go? Because under the Supreme Court ruling in Boise, if you have space, you can compel people to go. You can say, you can't sleep here. You're done. 
get up, we will transport you to a safe place where you can have shelter in three squares and get the help that you need. And if you don't wanna do that, we're gonna drive you outside the city limits or we're gonna get you a bus ticket home and we're gonna reunite you with your relatives. We have the legal ability to do that here and there's no political will. And that's what would really help these people. They don't need more food. They need no. rehab and Seroquel and to be reunited with family members and it's wraparound support services. Probably compelled because their addictions and their mental illnesses are keeping them from realizing what their needs are. Isn't that what big democratic government's supposed to do? Step in? and help people and provide them with all these government services that we're paying billions in tax dollars for? And how is it humane to like allow allow people to live like this? We, the, so here, I just had a thought, but I don't think they're smart enough to think this way. For a minute I thought, okay, maybe they're betting on the number, the numbers of the villages will, will is a good estimate of who will who's actually ready for help. And so we'll move them in there, but we'll give everybody the option and say, you've got to go if you don't want to go here, so that they, they then have the right to say, okay, what you're saying, you know, we're going to buy you one way ticket. They also need to be deterring people from coming to Oregon, which is half the battle, because as you know, the vast majority of people in tents are not from here. I don't they know as much here. about that as you do. Can you shed light for us on that? Yeah. So PSU does a study every other year about the homeless problem in Portland. And of course, the left then come back and say PSU has an agenda. PSU, which is a very progressive left-leaning school, which is why one of their professors just got ran out of town. Bogosian, yeah. What's their agenda? So I believe that in 2019, I'm not going to swear on this, but I'm fairly confident 75% of the homeless people that they... Um, you know, polled, interviewed, were not from Portland. And I'm pretty sure when I say not from Portland, from out of state. I know going back 20 years when I worked in a job where a lot of people uh, were on the street, none of them were from here. None of them were from Portland. And when you ask, you know, why do we have it outside in? Because homeless youth who are in fucked up housing, whatever situation, then it's horrible. And we don't have services for kids. We don't stop the bleeding early enough. That's part of the problem. What about but Janice? Janice Youth Services. I mean, there's Janice usually a bed there, and they're fabulous. Janice is great. Outside In is fantastic. I mean, Bill and Melinda Gates gave a shitload of money to Outside In. Um, and again, I mean, I think I've told you this. Uh, everybody that I have come across in a professional way who has gone through treatment, gone to inpatient, you know, stayed engaged, stayed sober, has been transitioned into permanent low-income housing in a very short amount of time, and before then, lived in a sober living house. There are what's called Oxford houses all over the all over the city, all over the state, where you um, you do have to pay rent, but here's the kicker: you have to be sober to live there. And if you're not sober, you can't live there. There are beds open right now at Oxford houses. Why aren't people in tents living there? You know, it, it just, there, there's just no pragmatic thought to any of this. Well, and um, people I know are pushing this narrative of, well, we don't really know.
who these people in the tents are. They love that article, uh, the Washington Post article, The Mansion on Emerson Street, because in that article, the author just sort of walked around and interviewed people in tents and wrote down what they said. And some of them admitted to drug abuse, but a lot didn't. And one woman they profiled in particular, they made her out to be this hardworking single mom with at least one functional job who was living in a tent because she was evicted. And I read that story a, a number of times and all the, my left-wing friends who sent this to me and said, well, see, they're not all mentally ill and they're not all drug addicted. I said, this is during an eviction moratorium. Why was this person evicted? That doesn't make any I mean, the barriers... The renter protections in Portland are so insane, particularly during this pandemic. It made no sense to me why she was evicted. The Washington Post reporter did not dig into this. And then I, I just did a public background search that anybody could do on their computer that certainly this Washington Post reporter could do on her criminal history. Excuse me, her alleged criminal history. So I just looked up the public reports matching the name and the age for this person and I came up with a criminal history that may or may not have been this person that was drugs, drugs, drugs. And that would explain why she was in a tent. And when I was really poor, it never occurred to me to live in a tent. Never. It, it occurred to me to move in with family and friends, which I did, to couch surf, which I did. Functional people move out of Portland to less expensive areas, like Gresham, right. like Happy Valley, like, like really any suburb, and they commute in. The, the working, undocumented and documented immigrants, they don't live in Portland or the suburbs. They're commuting in from Wilsonville, from Woodburn. They're functional adults who are managing their life. They, it doesn't occur to them to set up a tent. The people in tents speak English. If this were a housing problem, we would see undocumented people who don't speak English. And you won't see, you, you will, almost never see a brown face in one of these tents, number one. And number two, you, I've never, I've, I've never heard somebody speaking a foreign language in one of these tents. And you and I have been in intimate contact with, I would guess, thousands of these people at this point. It's been so many years and we've been living with and around them for so long, especially working downtown and interacting with them on a daily basis. I've never heard anybody speak. You no, know, it's gibberish, but it's English. It's not Spanish coming out of the tents. Right. So yeah. how are those people getting housed? I mean, these are people coming over with no jobs, with no security whatsoever, multiple family members. I mean, we've got Afghan refugees that we're resettling, and somehow they're flourishing. Right. Th these people are not only, these immigrants coming over are not only doing well, they're flourishing. They're finding jobs. They're finding housing. This is not a housing issue. Everybody likes to say, well, housing is so expensive in Portland. You bet it is. And poor people with brains don't live here. Right. And the same goes for every, every city in the country. And in fact, rich people with brains don't live here. They're all moving out too. They're going right. to Florida. They're going to Texas. Where are people coming to Portland from? More expensive cities. They're functional people that look around and realize that the Bay Area is too expensive. That's who's moving to Portland. Poor people are not, have no business moving to Portland and they know it. 
That's why they're all going to, to Boise. And the housing there is skyrocketing. And Montana and what have you. They're not coming here. I, I mean, the poor people coming here, it's like you said, they're coming here to get free services. Right. There, there are, I mean, there was just, the Oregonian just published an article about the 121 homeless people that have died this year. Um, and and the like, overwhelming majority were drug, were drug, drug and alcohol related. And then a subcategory was, you know, inconclusive, but there were, there was an addiction, you know, there was meth in their system and all of that. I, I just... Like I have worked with people who are homeless and who who have fallen on hard times. The last thing they want to do is to be seen by anybody. They're the, they're never going to be at downtown sidewalk on a tent. Um, they're incredibly embarrassed about what's happening to them. And I do realize that for a large majority of this country, there is no safety net, and that I am very fortunate. Of that course I, that's that true. I, I mean, they've done all those studies saying most Americans don't have $400 in the event of an emergency, but most Americans right. are not living in tents. That's where right. the disconnect is. Right. And now, I mean, I, like, I, I don't know why we get the family income check every year, every month. From Do you home. really? Yeah, we get a partial one. Wow. That's amazing. And, I, and so, you know, someone would say, well, why don't you send it back? Like, give me a fucking break. Like, if I send it back, do you think that they're going to allocate it in an appropriate way? Like, fuck you. I didn't ask for this thing. I didn't, I mean, a, a check just showed up one day. And it's not a lot of money, but I wonder how many people who have lost their kids or whose kids aren't living with them are getting these checks. Um, I know the stimulus uh funds fueled a lot of these overdoses because suddenly people had a lot of money, you know, on them. But every person that has been homeless who has transitioned their lives will say, one, it without having consequences, I never would have been able to get it together, meaning getting charged, going to jail, um, which is why Multnomah County used to have such a great program, this, this alternative court system called drug court, which... If it is still around, I don't even know because they're not charging any, anybody with crimes. I mean, I don't know any, anybody who'd be in it, but it was this service-driven program, very monitored, you know, overseen by social workers and treatment providers. And it was like, okay, if you successfully complete this, then you're not going to go to jail. And I don't remember if they expunged the offense or not. I think they did. And it was great. They had a mental health court that did the same thing for people with mental health system. Do you know how many naked people I have seen downtown in the last month? I mean, buck naked people. Yeah, me My too. daughter was in Starbucks by her school downtown. There was a naked guy with like a huge stick and, you know, the, the staff didn't know, you know, we're on the call, on the phone with 911. This place was probably two blocks from the PPB headquarters and it took them like 20 minutes to, to get somebody there. But it is, um, it is really, I have, I, my empathy has just gone out the window because I just wish we could have an adult conversation and say this is not monolithic. Let's focus our efforts on the people that want help. But instead, we're pouring billions into people, into into programs that won't work. And I think it's really an abuse of power to designate COVID relief funds to this. To a bunch of people that are not from Portland, certainly not from, not from Oregon. You know what I mean? It's just... Unless uh, we change our city charter, all we're going to get are woke morons. 
Yeah. Because nobody with a brain will want that job. Yeah. And Portland Public Schools had record unenrollment. Is that the word? Yes. Unenrollment, unenrollment. Um, way more than the national average. Uh, I mean, how many people do you know that have put their kids in, in private school in the last year or two? I know a, a ton, including me. I um, did, and it's... I mean, I couldn't quantify, but it's a lot. It's a, it's a, And the people who didn't really only didn't move their didn't move their kids not because they wanted to stay in public school. I mean, the people that I really, who've talked about this issue with me from the bottom of their heart, the people who aren't virtue signaling and talking on Facebook and next door about how I'm leaving my kid in public schools because I care about her. I'm going to drown them with everybody else because I care about kids. So I'm just going to drown my kid with everybody else in PPS. Not cutting the bullshit. The people who who are realistic, who talk candidly about PPS's problems offline that I've spoken with say, I just can't afford it. Um, they're living to paycheck to paycheck. They're, yeah. They don't have savings. Or they say things like, look, if we go into private school, and I know many people like this, they, they have gone into private school and there are no more family vacations. There's no more, discretionary income is gone. And some people have said, hey, I guess I could put them in private schools, but that would mean the end to things like even just going to the Oregon coast for a weekend and our family really needs that. And so we've just decided to, Sophie's choice here, we're best of two evils. I guess we're just going to keep them in PPS and then we'll use our extra income to decompress. But you know, private school is just, it is so expensive. And most people, the reality is they just can't do it, especially if they want their kids to go to college. They just can't do it. And, and inflation, know. you know? I, I mean, people can't afford beef. Yeah. Middle-class oh. people with good oh, jobs. I, I just ordered Instacart this morning, and, like, paper towels were, like, $22. It's I, I bought a book that was $30 the other day. Oh Not God. a big book. Um, another another issue that I never would have thought would be me, and I was always my whole life adamantly against uh, school vouchers. Yes, um, me too. Because, and part of it was how, like, a lot of my political views I, I inherited from my parents, who were both progressives. Same. Definitely moderate progressives, definitely centrist, definitely against this woke bullshit. But... Um, because I always felt like it was just going to make the poor schools poorer. Um, and I wouldn't listen to politicians saying, no, that's the exact opposite. Poor families can then, you know, afford to, to go. Now, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. And I do feel for people uh, that, that cannot afford um, private school right now and are stuck with PPS. We have one of the worst school districts in the country. But we have the highest property taxes. We are... Te- we, we, Pay for every fucking bond measure. How is that? How is that so? And I'm so tired of hearing about teacher fatigue. What did you think you were signing up for? I spent the first seven years of my career uh, working in a nonprofit environment, making jack shit. I didn't. Oh, with a very high, uh, you know, workload. I knew what I was getting into. The teachers I know who are good teachers, they do their assignments or their planning at home at night. I don't give a shit that you have to work nine or ten hours a day. You get three months off. Oh, no. They don't just get three months off. They get Christmas off. They get spring break off. 
They get teacher planning days. They get, I mean, they get President's Day. I mean, if you add it and add it up, it's like a five-month sabbatical. I know. And the audacity that they have when there are kids who have never recovered from COVID. You know, I can't, I don't even want to think about the number of kids who um, are in, you know, unstable homes who probably did nothing. I mean, there was just probably no school work the entire last year. And now they're coming back and they're, they've lost their social skills. They've lost all the tools that they have learned because school is often the one place that teaches them manners and interpersonal communications. That's why you're kind of having epic fights. I have a friend who was a kindergarten, uh, like a teacher's assistant at a low income school. Monday morning, she texted me before eight, there were sheriff's deputies, one kid stabbed another kid. This is an elementary school. Um, Where was so this? It, in Beaverton, in a low, in a low, in a low, in a low. Um, I, 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 I just think, and here's the, here's the problem. We need other people to, to come out of the brainwashing like we did. We need other people, and it's starting. And what started it was the school issue. I mean, how many women do you see on Twitter who were left their whole life and saw how fucked up? the COVID, the school's policies were towards their kid and are now like, I don't care. I don't believe in Kate Brown. I don't believe in the left agenda. I think that we're gonna see that in Oregon and elsewhere. But the vast majority of my friends blindly will blindly just follow whatever the left view is supposed to be. Like I think abortion for an example. Here's, here's, here's a crazy idea. So what, for 40 years, those of us who are pro-choice have been going up an uphill battle, right? Like it's, it's getting more and more restricted. In many states, it's virtually impossible for a woman to get an abortion because- Mississippi, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, you have to go to a city and wait three days and, you know, meet with, it's, it's, it's the equivalent if you're poor. Wealthy women will always be able to get access to abortion, whether it's legal or not, whether they fly to Mexico, fly to Canada, whatever it is. The people that won't be able to get abortion are the exact people we need to be able to get abortions because otherwise, what do we have? Another generation of tents, of addiction, of, of kids, kids who don't get, who, who end up on drugs because they don't have stability. So I think we say to the anti-abortion people, fine, you know what, we're taking it off the table. And we revert back to the day, days of Jane. Do you know what the Jane was? Where there were doctors who trained women who, to, to do, uh, uh, they didn't lose a single patient to do uh, abortions. And everybody looked the other ways. The cops knew about it. The politicians who were against abortion knew about it because it wasn't in their face. Everybody knew about it. It was, and so, can you imagine like the leverage that would be gained by not trying to keep fighting the uphill battle? Because we're not going to win it. Even though seventy percent of Americans think abortion should be legal, with the Supreme Court we have now, we're not going to win it. But I think with laws like Abbott's, which enable civil lawsuits against people. That would have a real chilling effect on your idea. I mean, I don't think most people are going to risk their livelihoods, especially people with means. No, 
No. Can you imagine that this is going to breed some, like, group of people, like trolls, who are, like, on the lookout for anybody that helped someone get an abortion? Yeah. I don't... Is it ever going to... I mean, is it ever really going to become anything? I mean, maybe if there was, like, a conservative law group that was prepared to go after doctors, but I don't know if citizens are really going to be that engaged in... I don't either, but I'm also scared enough of the law to know that if I lived in Texas and a doctor had trained me to give somebody an abortion and I felt, I like the idea and, 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 and I know a lot of people that would be, feel compelled to learn that and to start going out and assisting people smart people who I'm sure could do a good job and who, like you said, could do a great enough job that that there wouldn't be complications and people would look away. I think a lot of people with means would be scared of being sued. Sure. Yeah. And that law is just preposterous. I mean, I... It's really scary. It is. It is. It is like a big brother. And did you you see the high school valedictorian speech, the girl who in Texas was told that she had to speak only about certain things and she said fuck you and gave this was right when that law had been passed and gave just the you have i'll find it okay i didn't hear about it but it sounds interesting it it was great it was great but i just think abortion is something it's it's a red herring i mean so much of the time is spent with politicians and in congress talking about this one issue that it just gets in the way of a lot of other things getting done. And I don't see, I, I am opposed to adding more Supreme Court justices because that just creates, it's like the filibuster thing. I mean, that it just sets the wrong precedent. We're stuck with what we're stuck with. They appointed who they appointed and it's done, you know, but, but Roberts, Justice Roberts. Who's very young and who has, because he wants to preserve the integrity, my understanding is that he is very interested in preserving the integrity of the Supreme Court as a non-political institution and preserving it as a, as a popular bastion of justice. He was appointed by George W. Yeah. And I think everybody was terrified of him and the major right-wingers said he was going to be a home run for conservatives a la which was interesting because that's what everybody said about Justice Souter but of course Justice Souter turned out to be very centrist almost left-leaning and I think the same is happening with Justice Roberts who I think is interested in more consensus building and bringing the court together in nuance and reasonableness. I mean, I, I, I was, I hated George W. Bush. I thought he was a war criminal. I felt betray, utterly betrayed by him. The day he was elected, I felt like I had floated out of my body or something. I just couldn't even believe the newspapers when I woke up that morning. But I will say, that I think, I like Roberts. I like Justice Roberts. Justice Roberts has been a very nice surprise on the Supreme Court, and he seems extremely reasonable. But you're right, they've elected, they, or excuse me, they've appointed who they've appointed. The makeup of the Supreme Court 
is what it is. And so I agree with you. I was a uh, woman in college in the 90s, a big... Hillary Clinton was my everything inspiration. She's part of the reason that I went to law school in the first place. I didn't know any lawyers. I never met a lawyer in my life. But I had... She was the first first lady who had a career, and I just thought it was so cool that she had been a practicing lawyer, and I just felt like if she if she can do it, maybe I, as a little girl, I just looked up to her and thought maybe I could do it too. She's really a big reason that I went to law school, and she, growing up with Hillary Clinton as my idol and my inspiration, abortion was my litmus test, right? That was my... Totally. My issue for every candidate was, are you pro-choice? Are you pro-choice? Are you pro-choice? And now, like you said, I think we have to wake up. We have to realize that the makeup of the Supreme Court is what it is, that abortion rights have been so significantly eroded over time. We need to see that for what it is. And if we are going to get ahead politically, we have got to move beyond abortion and I I've got to say I I think I would have placed myself as a pro abortion person in college I would have even said I am pro not just pro-choice pro-abortion I think I would have said that and what's so interesting is I think we as as intelligent people we have to acknowledge that the medical science and Caitlin Flanagan in the her Atlantic article does such a good job of this we have to acknowledge that the medical science has advanced in such a way that this ain't no cluster of cells, certainly at a much earlier point than we all thought back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, and babies can survive at 20-something weeks now. Right. So this is a much more delicate issue than I think a lot of us thought we were dealing with in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. It, the medical science has evolved so much that you, I think, as women and as mothers and as people, we really have to tangle with this sticky, nuanced issue of viability. <laughs> well, and what I think would be much more productive is if the, the left, instead of focusing so much on abortion, said, okay, agree to a robust, a law that allows and mandates a robust health education uh, program for every kid. Because, you know, in some states, there's there's no abortion and there's also no sex ed. And yes. it's just a disaster. So why not make, you know, let them know. Like in Oregon, there's, even Catholic school, my daughter had a full-on sex education. But in Our a lot of states... They believe that it encourages sex. Nobody in, in middle school sits through uh, their their uh, health teacher giving a presentation on sperm and thinks, oh my God, I'm so horny. I want to go fuck someone right now. I mean, it's crazy. So it's, why don't we focus on that instead of, you know, and it is nuanced. And it, that article just did make me understand. I, I do wish that people were more truly pro-choice like I would never get an abortion my mother-in-law told me which I was surprised she said I don't agree with abortion but I would never tell another woman what to do Um, I wish that was the way but I understand now that people do see um, this as a baby 
But I will say, and I will call out anybody who is anti-abortion, who also does not support 100% uh, services and funds That's right. to, to take care of these and free lunch. 15-year-olds. That's right. Yeah. Like right. things like the, the, all these people who are opposed to cutting Biden cutting checks to families. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna want some crackhead addicted to drugs to give birth to, if you're gonna or force a 13 year old to give birth to a baby, you better be prepared to take care of that kid for the rest of their lives. I mean, you better be willing right. to write checks for all those kids. Right. There. I don't know if it's still around, but there was a nonprofit in uh, in Southern California that paid women who had lost like fourth, fifth, sixth kids like to DHS who like just were to have uh, hysterectomies. And I thought, great, that's a great idea. I know the government can never do that, but, and I'm not talking about like one, you know, one I've heard of that. Where, where someone fell on, on bad times and lost a kid to DHS. I'm talking, I mean, I'm talking about like, you know, just repeat over and over again, which is fathoms Why would anybody want to? I mean, I didn't love being pregnant. Let's just put it. Let's just put it that way. Um, but it is. It is a. It is such a. It just consumes so much time. I also don't understand why everybody would be on board for these long-term birth controls now that we have. What's the problem with that? With the shots or the or the IUD? Why aren't we funding that? Why aren't we handing those out like candy? Right. That I mean, that's we decriminalized fentanyl, but you need a prescription for a Depo-Provera shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, I don't understand how anybody could not want to prevent pregnancies, even if you're Catholic. You know, most Catholics I know are, I would say, are Catholic light um, and are pro-choice. But I really, what I would ask people who are dug in on the right about this issue, just as you and I are saying, okay, we're starting to understand the nuance and we're hearing what you're saying, I would ask them to do the same thing when it comes to preventative measures so that we don't have to deal with the abortion problem. But they need to know that forever and ever, wealthy women will always get access to abortions if they need them. It is the people that shouldn't be having kids that won't. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with you. What I also thought was interesting is, I don't know if you listen to any of the abortion arguments, but many of them, and I know this is the U.S. Supreme Court, and so we're dealing at a much higher level, much of which involves policymaking and not necessarily black letter law that like I might be dealing with on a trial court, well, I'm always dealing with on a trial court level because I don't do appellate work. But um, what was interesting to me is the people who were opposed to the abortion restrictions, the lawyers were arguing about public policy for women and women in the workplace and not, let's not set women back. And it was so interesting to listen to their language because every time they talked about, they, they said the word women over and over and over again. And every time they said that, all I could think about was the Biden administration changing the word mother to birthing person. And I just thought, I wonder if the left is going to have to pick a course on this. Are they, are they yeah. going to have to pick a lane on this? Because abortion 
in in Portland, Oregon, if you talk to a 19-year-old Portland resident, they will tell you that abortion is not a women's issue, that it's a birthing person's issue, and would call you a transphobe, uh, turf, a um, transphobic, radical, feminist per- person, a bigot, a piece of shit for using the word women to describe people who have babies. It's just more misogyny. That's all it is. It's, it's like, it's nothing sacred. I mean, can we not acknowledge the fact that women, I mean, you know, I have a friend who's a black man who always says women are at the very bottom. That's why Obama won um, and, and a woman hasn't. That beyond everything, race, uh, creed, everything else, we still are like the, at the lowest level on so many things. And so fuck them. Like, I'm not, I, I am not, if you want to call me a turf, you can call me a turf. I think the whole radical trans thing is on its way out. I think most people who are transgender uh, had no problem with Dave Chappelle's comedy bit. I think that most people who are transgender would not want to change the terminology to birthing woman or would argue that there are two genders. Um, I think it's a small group of like the the equivalent of Antifa. Like they go and they harass people and they physically, I mean with the Dave Chappelle thing, they were picketing and they were like physically assaulting people because one guy held up a sign and just said, I like Dave. That's all he said. And they started beating him up. Um, I think that's on its way out. I think people are exhausted and also are tired of feeling bad about the fact that they can't keep up and if they say the wrong thing. I have a nephew who apparently, who's chose to be a traveler, okay? So he chose to be, he's, thank God, not a heroin or meth addict. He's more of a hippie traveler. But the minute he turned 18, he hit the road, and he's now just on the fringes, and he's, and my parents are amazing grandparents, and they embrace all of whoever. And I do have a transgender, a full transgender nephew who has completely had the change, where I say, like, I don't even remember him as a, as a sheep. Like, I forget. Uh, but this other nephew, who's just always looking for attention, announced recently that, that he is now a she, and we should call it by a different name, and then is dating a they, but it was going to go over to my parents' house for dinner and said to my mom, um, they will get really upset if either of you get any of the pronouns wrong. And I'm like, well, fuck they. Don't, you know, they're not coming to dinner. How dare you? Like, my parents are as liberal and open-minded as they get. I mean, my transgender nephew, when he came out at 18, I mean, it was like both sets of grandparents, everybody in our family was like, it, it was surprising, but was like, we love you, we support you, you know, all of that. So the fact that my elderly parents don't get pronouns right and you want to attack them, go fuck yourself. It's just, it's so obscene. And and I don't do the she thing on my signature. I, I just think it's, it's, it's too much. I, uh, Glenn Lowry had a great, did a, a great analogy about something about like, you know, if you're cooking, if you're frying food and you turn it on high and 
right away and you try to fry it, it's going to turn out terribly. It, you know, it's a slow process. You've got to keep it on a low level and evolve. And, and it, it's like that. Give people time to come. You know, I mean, think about 25 years ago and how different people felt about, about gay marriage. You know, and now I, I don't know a single person who's against gay marriage in, in, in my life, in any circle, whether they're right wing or left wing. I don't know anybody who's against it. That that pretty quick in time that it happened, you know, but shoving it down our throat and shaming us for not knowing all of the terms. It's not going to it's not going to help their cause at all. I think it's doing the opposite. The other area that I think the left's going to have to pick a lane in is when you have white women transitioning to men either sexually I mean now they don't disclose so when in the 90s at least and I'm dating myself but there was an uh, there was a difference between a trans transsexual and transgender right and people were pretty open about it they'd say I had yeah. top surgery but not bottom or I had bottom surgery but not top or I'm I'm pre-op they'd say like I'm a pre I'm trans but I'm pre-op um and it was, it was actually, like, useful because you, when somebody's phenotypical traits didn't match their name or their pronouns, that was, like, useful information. I mean, yeah, none of your business, but, like, just to have and to understand and to help remind your brain as the non-trans person who wants to be compassionate to say, oh, that's why Jerry is Geraldine because they're pre-op, but they're you know, they're, they're, they've, in their mind and to the outward world, they are transitioning. And so I'm going to make a mental note there. Now it's just, I am somebody with a beard and a deep voice saying, I'm Geraldine. And if you don't say she, her, go fuck yourself. And what I think is so interesting is, and in another area in which I think the left is going to have to pick a lane is, you know, they've got this hierarchy of identity categories, right? And let's say just for argument's sake, like the black trans woman is the most revered identity category in the hierarchy, like the one that deserves the most deference, the most respect. Um, what's so interesting is all of these white women transitioning to men who are becoming white men, which I had all, all, all along understood to be the enemy of the left. Like, Ellen Page turning into right. Elliot Page and making political speeches on talk shows like like uh, his statement about Jesse Smollett talking about how it's a hate crime pure and simple and you need to listen to me and I'm waiting for the left to say how dare this white privileged male talk to me that way. Right. And, and right. Another way I think they have to pick a lane is like the Rachel Dolezal thing, right? Because... Now that trans people don't have to explain themselves, and I feel like I look very phenotypically female, and now that I could just walk into a room and say, in Portland, you, you will now refer to me as, as uh, Sam, and my pronouns are he, him. And if you don't, you're a bigot. And have force somebody to sit across from me and refer to me as a male during the entire conversation, even though I am trying my damnedest to present as females. I mean, in fact, so far that I look like a female female impersonator. I'm practically trans. I'm, pra I'm like a trans male. I'm so female. I just, I love hair, makeup, the whole thing. So, 
you know, the fact that I can do that is so interesting, but Rachel Dolezal can't identify as black. She is not allowed to identify as black. Because yeah. because black because she has that. the privilege of identifying as black. Well, couldn't I say I, to Ellen Page, "Hey, you don't get to identify as a white man. That's not fit. You you are a traitor to the our sex, are the female yeah. sex, and right. you are part of the problem because you're now a white man oppressing me. You're you're." The hi- in the hierarchy of identity categories, I yeah. am now um, the woke would say I'm superior to you, Elliot Page, right. because I am yeah. a female and I have you're oppressing me because you're now in a, in an identity category that earns more than me. That that uh, your friend, your black friend, would say um, is is at the lowest rung of the totem pole of why women have never yeah. been president. I think the argument they made, and I agreed, I. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a really great um, op-ed in Time about Rachel Dolezal where he's like, why do you care? Let her, if she feels, you know, culturally more, you know, let her, let it be. He was in support of her. But I think that the argument was that at some point years before, she had filed some sort of racial harassment, like workplace claim as based on her, based on being a black woman. And I think that- But if she was trans, that would be okay. That's true. That's true. And I know... And the left would defend her right to do it. Yes. Yeah. I, I know plenty... The ACLU would raise money to bring a lawsuit on her behalf if it was involving gender rights. But when it involves a white person identifying as black, that is is anathema. We, we yeah. universally condemn that. But, but in Portland, you can walk into a, a room looking um, as female, as fe- looking like Kim Kardashian, like female, female impersonators, female as can be, and demand that you be called Ken and that you be referred to as he and his. And if anybody does anything different than that, you can throw a fit and, and probably sue them. I mean, I bet, and, and a good lawyer might even take that, and a woke Portland jury might award you some money that Rachel Dolezal can't bring a racial discrimination claim, even though I think she was pretty well phenotypically changing herself to present as black. Absolutely. I mean, I would have thought she was black. I think most people, she was the head of the NAACP in Spokane. She clearly was, quote, unquote, passing as black. Um, And and had she been trans and passing in that same way as, let's say, a female to male or male to female, she would not only be applauded, she would be exalted as some somebody to be revered, a brave person, a brave warrior for the left cause, for justice. But if you are try to present or or pass and, and say that you identify as a skin color that is um you know, an oppressed skin color, particularly black, you're criticized, you're dismissed from your position, teach, I think she was at Eastern Washington University, you're dismissed from, 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 she's been canceled for life. I mean, she's now on like welfare, as my understanding, she's braiding hair, Um, she's got like an Instagram, I, I think she does like, she'll do a message to you for five bucks, I mean, she's just kind of scraping, they've, they've ruined her life. 
And she was a totally functioning member of society. Of society. Had a good job and took care of her kids. And um, Okay, two things. One is I would love the opportunity if there was a white transgender man like in some sort of forum to be able to say, I'm sorry, but you need to silence, I, you need to silence yourself because as a white man, you know, we've, we've listened to you far too long and see what fucking happened. The other thing is, have you been following the story about this Ivy League swimmer? Yes. Leah? Yes. And so for people that don't know, I, and I don't know how this is even um, de- debatable, uh, there's an Ivy League swimmer who was born a man, who competed as a man, and was okay. I mean, I think won a little bit, maybe won one competition. I mean, was definitely a college swimmer who transitioned and now swims on the women's team. Leah Thomas, and, I think is the name. Uh, Penn, University of Pennsylvania transgender yes. swimmer. So there's not even any second. Basically, everybody that's worked their asses off their entire year, or their entire lives, since they were little girls, know that the best they're ever going to get is second place. Because she... It's, there's not even a close second. She exceed like she's so. Oh, she's shattering records, left shattering and right. Shattering records, right? Because she has the physical abilities of a man. There are no female green berets. Is it green berets? Are they the navy ones? Did the green berets? Are they the ones that got uh, Osama bin Laden? I think those were the seals. Okay, the SEALs. There are no SEALs, right? There are no Navy SEALs. There is one, there is at least one uh, Green Beret, and that was in 20, but that wasn't until 2020. Oh, okay, then I'm wrong. My husband's actually wrong. I just asked him that question. I'm fine with that, because we obviously want our, our, our elite military teams who, like, have to, like, climb mountains and shit to be physically capable of doing so. There are two women currently trying to become the first Navy SEAL, but Navy SEALs are that category in which we haven't had a single one yet. Okay, what about the Green Berets? Green Berets, there was one in 2020, female in 2020. Okay. Well, good for that, man. Yeah. I mean, because, like, for the police to, to try out to be a police officer, which is a joke, because how many overweight police officers do you see? Uh, it really doesn't matter. The donut trap. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. But I, but they, they do have different physical stamina requirements, I believe, in some respect, for women. And that makes sense. I mean, how many chin-ups or pull-ups can you do? Because I can't do one. Yeah, zero. <laughs> <laughs> I always fail the presidential one. physical fitness test. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nor, oh, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was, I hated, I hate running. I hate running. I do, like, too. I, I don't get it. I mean, I, I know that it's just different. It's like spicy food. I don't like spicy food. I get it for other people. It tastes different. I get the running, what it does for you. So in high school, I I had this brilliant idea where I could be the aide for the special ed kids in their gym class as my gym credit and get out of running. I love that. having to exercise. And when I say special ed, I don't mean ADHD. I mean, you know, kids who are, um, who have intellectual disabilities. Yeah. And then they fucked me at the end and said, I still had to do the, do the two mile run or whatever. 
Although I did, I did prefer working with those kids any day over having to do gym class. Uh, but yeah, that was my, my husband loves that story. It's really funny. Um, so should we talk about guns? Yeah, please tell me about, uh, but you, so my understanding is you have a gun, but you were never in the position that I'm kind of coming out of a little bit, but I was in, which I, I'm like fervently anti-gun, never touched a gun, think people who own guns are nuts. You were never in that category. Oh, I was totally never touched a gun, um, believed in much, and I still do. But I were you anti-gun? Um, were you like, I, I think this should be like a European country where no citizen owns a gun? No. Okay. No, because, because of people that I'm like acquaintances of, like who are law enforcement, um, or who are private, private, or military people. Yeah. Like I have a good friend who's a West Point grad who, um, and those are all really like reason, you know, they don't own 57 guns. They own, you know, a, a gun or two, but so I was always in, in, and I still am in favor of gun reform, but, and I do think that if there was better, uh, checks and balances and kids did not have the easy access that they do to guns, it would be much harder to do these mass shootings at schools. Um, you know, sure, you could bring a knife or a machete, but, you know, you're not going to get the results that you get with a gun. Um, so I guess I was just, um, like, I, I'm always against the NRA. I think, like, they're, you know, um, but I don't, I never tried to, like, I didn't believe in people not being able to own guns, like a, a responsible adult. Uh, with background checks and mental health checks. And so my husband, he likes to go solo camping at least two or three times a year with just our dogs for a night. And the last time it was like, there were some tweakers at this, at this, he, he goes off grid, not to campsites, but there were people and he was so unsettled the whole night that he, the next day he went and got a gun and didn't tell me. And wow. until he came home, well, he came home. He's also bought two cars that way, which I don't know for some reason I never, I, I never care. Because it's always like, ooh, you picked a good car. Um, and I was surprised by myself. I was like, well, we need to have, it can't come in the house until we have a, a safe. We need so a gun locker. We, I need training. Exactly. I don't want this around me. Exactly, exactly. And so we bought the kind of safe that only our two thumbprints can open. And then I have a buddy who's a retired Secret Service agent uh, who took us to the gun, uh, what, I don't even know what it's called, range, and taught us how to use it. And not just taught us how to use it or shoot it, but taught us that you, you know, if you're ever in a situation with a gun, you look both to both sides, the way that when you're done shooting, you look in the, I don't even know what it's called, the little, the hole, in a way to make sure that the bullets cleared like out. Like the scope or um, whatever, yeah. And so he, he, and then he taught us how to, because you have to learn how to load it and all of that. We need to do it more, like two or three times. But um, I feel so much safer. because. But I if it's locked run. away in a safe, if some tweaker gets into your house, how are you even going to get it in time? Because where it is, I'm close. It I, it would give me enough time okay. to get to it. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in, and our dogs would if ever if.
if anyone ever was trying to get into our house, our dogs would start freaking out. So it would, right. I would have, and we have that, you have the ring doorbell thing. Yes. But the thing that is fucked up is that it also, like your neighbors post these videos of people that are trying to get into their house at yes. all hours of the day and night. In every quadrant of the city. In, including mine. I mean, we, we have less of it here, but, and it's, you know, I'll see someone and it is scary. That's what like made me feel like I feel so much better now. If I was home. So then I said, well, I, I don't want it. What if you go camping? And so now we actually have two guns, uh, for when he goes camping so that there's still one in the house. And you know what? I'm okay with it. I feel like we are absolutely doing it the responsible way. We have a kid who's old enough to understand that, um, you know, how, how she could never, you know, not that she'd have good access to, but she, you know, how serious it is. So, um, and I would not fucking hesitate. I swear to God, I would not hesitate. So for you, the turning point was the rise in not just the population of criminals throughout Portland, but the rise in lawlessness and the failure to have any kind of law enforcement system that's functional that would presumably step in and protect you from any of these, just these this burgeoning criminality in this city. Well, and I think this new kind of mess, it, it makes people so much more dangerous than, than the old kind. And and um, which is why you know we talked about the innocent woman getting attacked downtown and her have her having her femur like broken. It we linked like, to that op-ed in our show notes. It was really good. Oh yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, I think when you're psychotic in a meth-induced psychosis, you know there's no t- t- having a calm conversation with someone. There's also the carjackings. The Barber Safeway in, in Southwest Portland has had three armed carjackings in the last month in their parking lot, like in the middle of the day. So and in, in that case, I would not be trying to use a gun. I would give them my car. Um, but if anyone ever tried to get into my house with my family, I would not hesitate. Are you nervous at all because of the idea that Oregon, it's my understanding that Oregon doesn't have a stand your ground law. Are you nervous at all that some woke jury is going to convict you of killing some poor defenseless, as they would say, houseless person? No, because I, at least in Multnomah County, I can't think of a situation where a homeowner has killed an intruder where the, the DA's office, this is before Mike Schmidt, um, pursued charges. So the self-defense statutes in Oregon are pretty solid. Um, and the lethal self-defense statutes are pretty solid. So, I mean, God willing, I will never have to make this decision, but, um, you know, like my parents are in a secure building, so that I don't worry about. Um, but there's a lot of shit happening in this town. What about data suggesting that if you own a gun, the perpetrator may turn it again may use it on you what about data suggesting that does that concern you at all well that's why people say that if you're going to have a gun you need to be prepared to shoot to kill not to be like 
okay, I have a gun. I, you know, that's, I think, when that could happen, especially if I, it's a woman with, you know, facing a, ma a man. I think that it is a bad idea to be a gun owner. If you, if you have the gun for self-protection, if your thought process is that it would be a scare tactic. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 if someone, if someone was in my house, like some crazy person was in my house, I, I would not hesitate. I, 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 and I, I'm really, I'm really afraid in Portland now. I, I am not someone that scares easily. I, I get so enraged when people talk about, I was just downtown. It's fine. You guys are just snowflakes. It's not fine. What is behind that narrative? What is behind the narrative that, for instance, Nick Kristoff was pushing in the height of the Portland riots saying, Portland's just fine, and I can't find Trump's anarchists. What, and this narrative that people can, are continuing to push and that I feel like the Oregonian is pushing, all the media outlets, Willamette Week, we're doing great, stay strong. What is behind that? Because if you admit that, you admit that the liberal policies have failed us. So that they would have to admit that what our city council, the, the resolutions, ordinances they passed that the woke wanted, uh, have failed us. And so instead, they put us more in harm's way by uh, conveying this message that everything's fine. You know, if my car gets stolen, it's a huge inconvenience, but it is what it is. But if your car gets stolen and you're someone who doesn't have a lot of money, it, it, can, it can change everything. Crime is the hardest on the poor. Oh, for sure. That's why the overwhelming majority of black people in Portland do not want to defund the police. I would bet that they might not admit it in front of white people, but I would bet that a, a large percentage of black people in this town do not, do not like Hardesty and are not with her. I think they see her as totally removed. I mean, I've said this to you before, you know, is she going to, to, to meet with the, with the mothers who are losing their, their uh, sons to gang violence? Are, are, is anyone on the city council? You know, they always do that on a national level. Like the president will go, will call the widow. But I wonder, do they see, do they even see these kids as like faces? They're invisible. They're, they're entirely missing from the media narrative. And from politicians, speeches, from any kind of focus whatsoever, particularly in this city, when they talk about rising homicides in the Oregonian, there's very little discussion of who's being killed. Right. I mean, I can't name a single one. I can tell you a whole bunch of black people that have been killed by the police. Yeah. I can tell you their names. Right. But I can't tell you the names of the people who've been killed by just criminality, by gang violence, by gun homicide. I mean, you know it's happened in this country in the last 24 hours, and we haven't heard about it. We don't know the names of those people. And you also look at um, how, you know, there are so many people that they... they they want to hold on to the racism. They want to hold on to this separation and this conflict. I personally believe that the number one way to end 
uh, racism, even like nuanced sort of implicit bias racism is, is, uh, is real integration. Something we can't have in this town because we have such a small percentage of black people. But if you go to cities, my brother lives in Chicago, and it is all of the schools, all of the work, work life, social life, it's integrated. It's black people and white people and, and Hispanic people. That's what I think is the number one way. You know, I wish that there were more options for my daughter to go to a, a, a more integrated, diverse school. But you would have to move cities, right? But why? Why don't they say that? I mean, you know, oh, let's talk about the recent the award, twelve million dollar grant that they awarded to a woman. Her competitor was a white, a white, I believe, a white man who seventy five percent of his employees were white. This is a black. You're woman talking about the city of Portland grant. Yeah, it just happened. The article just came out. She lied on her resume in her interview about her prior job experience. The Oregonian confirmed with the company that they'd never heard of her. She had been to prison. She had, as recently as 2018, had liens uh, for failure to pay her taxes, not not filing her tax returns. Um, and the city council said that they, they didn't know any of this. There was Why a story know- about this in the New York Post. December 14th, 2021, Portland awards $11.5 million energy contract to woke firm run by ex-convict. A woke company run by a woman who has served prison time for defrauding companies and tax fraud. City staffers wanted the taxpayer-funded contract to go to supply heaters and coolers to low-income families to go to an established company. As you said, Jennifer, one that had an 85% white workforce. But the city council instead unanimously voted to award it to Diversifying Energy, a newly formed nonprofit with black leadership, promising equitable access to clean, sustainable energy for low-income communities and people of color. Diversifying Energy is run by Linda Woodley, 71, who has a troubling 25-year history, including two stretches behind bars, multiple bankruptcies, millions of dollars in fines for tax offenses, the local paper noted. She reportedly also fabricated key claims in her proposal, saying she'd managed a $30 million energy upgrade program in California, one that has never heard of her. Red-faced city officials insisted that they were unaware of Woodley's criminal history, adding that the $11.5 million agreement with diversifying energy was putting on ice pending a review. That's our city at work and our tax dollars. And, and let me be clear, I totally understand the concept of generational wealth and that people are not starting at the same at, with the same playing field, which is why there are great programs like first-time home, homeowner programs that match what you save and things like that. And I, but we have a person of color who runs our police department. We have a person of color who's the head of our school district. We have a city council that is very diverse, especially considering the population of, of uh, Portland and what Portland looks like. We're, we're going to we're going to hire someone that has a subpar that has a criminal history, but also the article in that article they said that city staff raised concerns when they were deciding about her excessive salary uh, 
what she what she identified as what the salaries would be for her and presumably other people. So there were red flags raised ahead of time. I don't believe for one second the city council didn't know about her past. I think they were just like people make mistakes and now they're lying. Just like just like Governor Brown when she got caught back east lied and said that she had her mask on the entire time only when she wasn't drinking. eating and drinking yeah yeah mm-hmm. it was total so i think they're lying and i hope that someone i hope i hope the willamette week or someone does a public rec- records request and proves that because this is just this is an embarrassment and and, and also why do we need 12 million dollars to distribute what are we distributing uh air heaters heaters we're doing four heaters it's 11 0.5 million dollars that we've awarded to this company run by this criminal to supply heaters and coolers to low-income families. 11.5 million dollars. I mean, you and I could do this on a shoestring. We could drive around and distribute them. We hire some guys on TaskRabbit. We run a couple of U-Hauls. We could do it for. We could buy them in bulk, and if we explain to Home Depot or whoever that this is what we would doing, we're doing it for. We could sell it as a huge PR deal. We could probably get them all fucking donated. Yeah. Oh, I know. That's the other thing. I mean, it's twelve million dollars. Like, why do you need a staff for this? Why? Why do you need an an entire entity? And that's what I mean. Really. They still, the city still hasn't come out and identified where they've spent, allocated this $38 million in, in, fund, in, in a bond measure or whatever that's going to the homeless problem. And nor will they. And that is part of why even the Oregonian said, do not vote for this homeless tax. That, when the Oregonian came out as against the homeless tax, my head almost exploded. I mean, there are very few taxes that the Oregonian does not endorse wholeheartedly. And when they came out against it and they said, don't do it because nobody is specifying where this money is going to go, I knew everybody would ignore it. It would pass with fine colors. Everybody would vote for it. Um, and, and they did the same thing. I, I also knew that that an exorbitant preschool tax would pass. And I'm seeing a lot of homeless around here and no preschools. In fact, preschools were, our government shut down preschools for a fair amount of time. And people like uh, Maxine Dexter, uh, our own state state and local representatives, they were all against the, the schools generally and even the preschools opening because of, because of histrionic COVID fears. But don't we already have Head Start? Isn't that what We do Head have Head Start. We have federally funded Head Start. So what is this? I've never heard of anybody who wasn't able to get into a Head Start preschool. So what are these funds for? I think the idea is for parents, the poor who are too too well off to qualify for Head Start. I think that's the idea. I, I don't think the parents... Yeah, I mean that... And it, and it like, had to um, be... I, the people, the reasonable people who came out against... The preschool tax said, don't vote for this because the reason the tax is so enormous and grandiose is because they want to give the preschool teachers, quote unquote, equitable pay. And they wanted to give them fucking purse. I mean, they did. It passed. 
So the idea is when they set all these preschools up, these preschool teachers are going to basically be, you know, an extension of PPS, and they're going to be paid absolutely handsomely, and they're going, you know, people with a GED or high school diploma or whatever teaching at these preschools. There's no standards. First of all, there's no standards for the teachers. There's no standards for the curriculum. There's no standards for any of this shit. It's just open up a preschool and apply to qualify for this, and the teachers get paid out of the, this insane amount of tax revenue and a princely sum, and they get PERS, they get health care, etc. And so the reasonable people that were against the tax were saying, you don't need this kind of money for universal pre-K. They were saying they made two good arguments. Number one, they said it should be a federally funded program. If we want to expand Head Start, let's expand Head Start. It should be a federally funded program that should apply to all states and should, should come from federal taxpayer dollars with stand, standards for teachers and standards for curriculum. And then the number two thing that they said is you don't need to pay high school educated preschool teachers this kind of money. And you don't need to give them these kind of benefits. If they want those kind of benefits, they, they should go to, to be a journeyman plumber or an electrician, or they should get a college. Well, you don't even need a fucking college degree to sub in PPS anymore. You, all you need is a GED or a high school diploma to sub because we can't find enough subs. So you could go be, be a sub if you want to be paid very well. But the idea was, you know, they were sort of like, well, we have to give them a living wage. And can't it's like Joanne Hardesty saying I'm too poor to live on $125,000 a year oh yeah with who doesn't I mean where does it stop she doesn't have any dependents and and I don't think she has student loan debt she, I think she went to community college and she was in the military so I don't know if she also gets a, a pension she Joanne Hardesty earned an associate of arts degree in business and accounting from Baltimore City Community College so she's a community college graduate she served in the Navy for six years, which is very cool. And she was stationed in the Philippines. Um, and all of that is, is very cool. And I don't, I'm not against somebody with a community college education serving on city oh, council. Um, but the idea, but what I'm against is people who can't manage $125,000 a year personally in their life sitting on city council and rubber stamping ballot measure after ballot measure and issue after issue of, of taxpayer dollars and just with a complete inability to manage certainly a city budget but even their own personal finances on a very nice salary of $125,000 a year. With city benefits. Oh my god, Cadillac city benefits. That I would kill to have. Oh, a I mean, fucking pension. Yeah. Who has a pension? Not, not, not this bitch. <laughs> Most people don't. Oh, there was another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, there's a, a new Portland public school that's going to be just for BIPOC kids. Okay, tell me about this. I did not know about this. It, it's a charter school, so it means that it's taxpayer funded. Uh, are they allowed to do that? Because I know of charter schools that have, that are amazing charter schools that uh, are run by absolutely fabulous people and friends of mine, that the intent is to serve BIPOC children, but they don't, I don't think, my understanding is they're not allowed to explicitly say that they will only serve BIPOC children. It's called the HALA Public Charter. H-O-L-L-A, I see that. Yep, it is. Uh, with Reynolds, in partnership with Reynolds School District. This is from 
December 8th, 2021, KGW.com Charter School for BIPOC students opening in Portland. And believe me, I mean, I think we have got to figure out a way to serve our communities of color in this mostly white city that does not seem to be able to serve white kids and certainly does very poorly, very, very poorly by black kids. If you look at the data, we are not serving uh, communities of color, these children in public schools at all. Um, But that's, are they allowed to say BIPOC only? Do you know? My understanding is that you can say that your intent is to serve BIPOC students, but you, but because of the Equal Protection Clause, you have to, if you're getting public money, you have to serve everybody. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not a legal expert in that. Well, that's not what this suggests. I mean, this suggests that, um, and, and I hate the part about where he says, like, our kids learn from hip hop. I see that. It says... Uh, the curriculum may seem yeah. unique to outsiders. This is from that same KGW article. But it'll still be tied to math and literacy. It'll just be taught in a different way. Hip-hop is what our kids understand. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens and we'll see what the data says. But my guess is if you were going to pick between the Hala char- Public Charter School that's teaching kids in hip-hop and let's say the Bronx School of Science, which is a magnet school in New York City, which does an incredible job of serving children of color and engages in hard math and science and test after test after test, most reasonable people would send their kids to Bronx Science and not haul a charter school to be taught in rap um, in a rap music curriculum. But that's maybe that's just me and maybe some amazing data will come out from the Hala Charter School. And, and if you want, if you, I mean, what, what do we want? Do, and this is where I've really had a, a, a metamorphosis about my views, where I, I, was, I was one and all like down with, you know, program services, money, 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 money uh, for disenfranchised communities. But what, what the goal is, we want to lift people up. We want to end the generations of poverty. Um, we, we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to have this idea that this is going to be a problem forever and so we need to put a band-aid on it we need to be motivating um, especially moms because there is unfortunately a very high percentage of single moms um, in, in who are in poor communities um, we need to be incentivizing them and helping them to bring their kids up and I believe that most black people would say that. Why do, and yes, I think that there should be, I I have real concerns about the special focus schools in Portland and how uh, it's more, it's class though, more than anything. It's wealthy parents at uh, Spanish immersion, whatever, who are able to gerrymander the, the boundaries in the districts to serve their kids. That's a class issue. There are far more poor white kids in Portland than any other form of, of poverty. And institutional poverty, you have the same problems, whether you're black, white, or otherwise. When you're food insecure, whether you're in an unstable home where you witness violence, um, I believe that they should designate a, a big percentage of slots for any of these schools 
to kids who are poor, not based on race and not teaching a separate curriculum. What are those kids going to do when they go to college and they've learned the you know hip hop uh, science? How are they going to compete? No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think this idea of, hey, black kids can't pass the test, so let's just get rid of the test is short-sighted. But I want to challenge you on one issue, which is generally I agreed with you on the class issue. And then I heard a stat from, yeah, it was, it was from Kendi, who said that black kids born into millionaire households, it was something like, are just as likely to be arrested as, I think it was white low income or white middle class kids. And I did some research on it and there is a New York Times article. It's called, Extensive Data Shows Punishing Reach of Racism for Black Boys. It's from March 19th, 2018. And basically the summary is black boys raised in America even in the wealthiest families and living in some of the most well-to-do neighborhoods, still earn less in adulthood than white boys with similar backgrounds. White boys who grow up rich are likely to remain that way. Black boys raised at the top are more likely to become poor than stay wealthy in adult households. And I need to find the um, Kendi data about black rich kids who are still just as likely to be incarcerated but, I mean, that, that's pretty interesting data. I mean, sort of the argument is it doesn't really matter if you're black and it's not about class, they would say, that it doesn't matter if you're black and you have money. It's really just about being black. The police stopped that, I believe. And I, I, think, and I think that goes to implicit bias and what um, uh, happens to cops who, I mean, this is an uncomfortable conversation to have. Right? Oh, it's very uncomfortable. I mean, we're two white ladies. So I found the data that was cited by, or my guess is this is the data that Kendi's relying on. It's from the Washington Post, March 23rd, 2016, by Max Ehrenfreund, and it's called Poor White Kids Are Less Likely to Go to Prison Than Rich Black Kids. It's a fact, the article says, that people of color are worse off than white Americans in all kinds of ways, but there's little agreement on why. Uh, many people think that class trumps race, but race trumps class, at least when it comes to incarceration, said Derek Hamilton of the New School, one of the researchers who produced this study. They, it's a national study. It started in 1979, followed a group of young people into adulthood and middle age. The participants were asked about their assets and debts. Interviewers noted their type of residence, including whether they were in jail or prison. Group participants in the survey by race and their household wealth as of 1985, and then looked back through the data to see how many people in each group ultimately went to prison. Participants who were briefly locked up between interviews might not be included in their calculations of the share who were eventually incarcerated. About 2.7% of the poorest white young people, those whose household wealth was in the poorest tenth of the distribution in 85 when they were between 20 and 28 years old, ultimately went to prison. In the next tenth, 3.1% ultimately went to prison. The households of young people in both these groups have more debts than assets. In other words, their wealth was negative. 
All the same, their chances of being in prison were far less than those of black youth from much more affluent circumstances. About 10% of affluent black youths in 1985 would eventually go to prison. Only the very wealthiest black youth, those whose household wealth in 85 exceeded 69,000 in 2012, had a better chance of avoiding prison than the poorest white youth. Among black young people in this group, 2.4% were incarcerated. What's when more, did that, what, when did they stop? What, when does the study go up to? Is, is It looks like it goes up to 2012. What's more, even young black people who follow the rules and are never incarcerated are less likely than similar white people to accumulate wealth as they get older. As of 2012, the median household wealth of black participants in the study who had never been incarcerated at some point, and this goes to that New York Times data, which shows that black people are less mobile than white people in regard to income, who had never been incarcerated at some point in their lives was $16,200. Those who had been incarcerated had zero wealth at the median. Among white participants who had never been incarcerated, however, median household wealth was 192000 by 2012, which seems like a lot. The median white participant who had been incarcerated reported wealth of $5,000. And it says it could be that white participants in the study still had other advantages over black peers, even if they had been incarcerated, perhaps they went to better schools or lived in areas where it was easier to find work. At the same time, another reason for the disparity between black and white wealth could be that employers make negative inferences about black workers' past, even when they've never been in prison. But that's, this is fascinating to me. It's a, sort of a chicken-egg problem, right? Uh, untangling economic and racial inequalities. The only thing I can think of is, well, in part, is geography where um, uh, the majority of black people in America, I believe, live in more in urban centers, not in suburbs, uh, or not in rural parts of this, their states. Um, that could be one factor. Um, I, I think this, again, goes back to implicit bias. Without a doubt, we all have our, our preconceived prejudices are biased. We make assumptions about people just by how they look and they dress. Um, but what I don't hear is that the way we've been well, planned from segregation from, from the civil rights movement to now is clearly not working because when you look at pre-segregation, uh, pre-desegregation, there were communities all over this country that had black-owned banks, black-owned restaurants, black-owned law firms. Many, many of the communities were much better off when they were not relying on government aid and on benefits. And all of those imploded after things started to change. And what I can only attribute that to is that White people have done a grave disservice to black Americans in this country by, like what John McWhorter says about, um, you know, what's the word, not infantile, like assuming that they're not capable of competing with the rest of us. The soft bigotry of low expectations. That's what Glenn yes. Lowry calls it. That's And that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you hear about white law students without asking the student sending a letter to their professor saying that the black classmate should have to take the final because of George Floyd. 
Um, I have an example, a personal example, where I, I was, this was cringeworthy to me. I was so uncomfortable. A friend of mine who's a realtor was all excited to tell me and my black girlfriend uh, when we were out, all out the other, like a couple years ago, that her colleague was about to surprise a black family with paying their down, paying their closing costs as a, as a Juneteenth present. And we both, like, you could hear that. And I said, did, did they ask them? Did they ask the man, the husband? How do you think a man is going to feel when a white realtor assumes that he's not capable of covering his? It's shit like that that is the problem. When you look at black uh, immigrant communities and refugee communities, they still look black. The stats are They do very well. Immigrants, uh, black immigrants, really immigrants of any color, but particularly black African immigrants to the United States do extremely well in the United States. So going back to the um, question of whether this is a race or class issue and and Kendi's data, I found, this is from prisonpolicy.org, Racial, this, it says new research ends, is it race or is it class debate about mass incarceration, March 19th, 2018 by Wanda Bertram. Racial biases in the criminal justice system don't only apply to poor people, according to new research from Harvard, Stanford, and the Census Bureau covered in today's New York Times. This is the data point Kendi was talking about. Black men raised in the top 1% by millionaires were as likely to be incarcerated as white men raised in households earning about $36,000. I mean, that blew my mind. That is shocking to me. And that is unacceptable. And I I don't have an answer, but I... And what I'm interested in is, let's yeah. dig into that, right? Because right. I, with Kendi, that's a period at the end of that sentence. I mean, is it... Nobody's interested in digging into this. I mean... The New York Times didn't dig into it. This article doesn't dig into it. It just says it's, they, they just kind of leave it there. Like, well, obviously there's racism and there's systemic racism. And I'm sure people would use this as evidence of why we need to defund the police and get rid of the criminal justice system altogether. Um, and it's a great piece of data to try to do that. But I would say, why aren't we more curious and digging into why black millionaires are just as likely to be incarcerated as white men making 40 grand a year. What Can't we dig into that as to why? If Kendi really cared about his people, this is the same thing about Joanna Hardison really cared about black people. You know, he would be, like Glenn Lowry says, Kendi creates the thesis that he wants. He finds a way to prove the points that he wants to make, not the other way around. So he he start he comes at it from a biased standpoint. He, the reason that he's not asking is because he doesn't want to know the answers to it because it's more complicated than racism. As long as we're talking about things that we can't talk about in Portland, I think we need to get back to the issue of abortion and the question about whether as liberals with a capital L and registered Democrats who don't want the far left to completely take over our party, who are unwoke 
and who want to see people with good ideas come into power, do we abandon our pro-choice litmus test for candidates? Abortion is always going to be legal in Oregon. I'm not going to change. That's not going to, that's not going to change. I think we have the least restrictive abortion laws in the country. I think we do too. Uh, we could make it a whole, you and I could start a tourist business where we could uh, promote our abortion services here, set people up in spa, a spa-like situation. Give grants, give grants yeah. to people I from the South who want yeah. to travel to Oregon for an abortion. That's, you know, you're, you're, you're onto something here. What we as reasonable, nuanced progressives should be, with brains, should be doing is coming together to set up community organizations and nonprofits that bring people from states that are limiting abortion to places like Oregon. And like you said, pamper them, set them up, get them access to the abortion care that they need, and throwing if we threw just a couple calories behind that, think of the money and the, the resources that we could raise to do that and, and the, the uh, human power that we could bring behind a policy like that. And, and if we could turn off all of this energy to, about whether the candidate is pro-life or not and whether the candidate supports 90s-style abortion rights or not, if we could channel that into bringing women to pro-abortion states, I think we could really get somewhere uh, where we could weed out the whack job progressives with bad ideas and preserve things that we care about, like abortion rights, for people who can't find them in their states anymore. I think that's a brilliant idea, and it uh, I mean, I already have, I have one super wealthy friend that would be all over it. I'm sure she would give a shitload of money or something like that. It, it takes the power away from them. Um, that's exactly and that's, right. And it puts it in the hands of the people who can right. really get shit done and make it happen. Like, like you said, like we could hand out heaters and air conditioners for right. less than, you know, $12 million. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, we could, if we channeled all of that energy behind getting women just get getting women to the abortion access that we know they can get in places like Oregon and elected some officials with a couple brain cells to rub together that are not complete and total left-wing whack jobs think of what we could get done in this country I mean we could keep schools open we could get masks off these kids imagine how many friends you'd have who would love the opportunity to like pick a woman up at the airport every single person every, everybody every I, know. I know take her to her, her her nice hotel you know or women who have you know social social worker or like therapy backgrounds to be volunteer on calls in case someone's struggling with the decision it would be and then and then we could uh and that's what I guess people who are anti-abortion are saying that just let it go back to the states, right? Like let's overturn weight and make. But it, it seems like we can get a bipartisan effort on that because they would well, be fine with that because we're bringing they, them to our state. They're saying leave it up to the states. So, right. I mean, we're, we'll yeah, vote for their we'll vote for their Republican pro-life candidate if they have good ideas. 
Right. And then, like, if it was just Oregon and Washington. I mean, I, I think, like, I think Bill and Melinda Gates would, would award a grant. I do, too. I think that is a super, super smart idea. Because this is not winning. And, oh, I was so nauseated by when one of the extreme restrictive laws came out. All these women on Facebook were with their... Um, to everyone in Texas, I have a spare room ready for you. Like anybody's going to contact a random white stranger and be like, hey, I saw your Facebook post. I'm, can I stay at your house? It's just so, uh, what's the word? It's just, it's not sincere. Yeah, it's this, gross. This, it's virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. This is sincere. Let's do it. Yeah, no, this would be a organization I mean, this is what left-wing women with a couple brain cells strung together who want people with good ideas in office, who are sick of Portland, uh, the hellscape that the far left has created from L.A. all the way up to Seattle, who are sick of that kind of garbage, who don't want to defund the police. Really, what we should be doing is channeling our energy into community organizations that provide the services and the rights that we want to preserve for women, like pro-choice and abortion health care and we should start electing people to office even if they're pro-life with good ideas yeah and we should stop making that our litmus test and solve that in other ways we would get such better candidates in oregon such better candidates if we if we could just let that piece go you know, I mean, if, if we could just give that up for, and forget Oregon, the national stage. I mean, if, if, if lefties can give that up as a single issue vote, we could get some good, reasonable candidates in national office who, you know, are, who will really start reining in this bullshit COVID politicization stuff. Yeah, and we could get them to make concessions if they were happy with this plan. Portlanders will fund anything. I don't think Portlanders are going to have a problem at all funding a community organization that takes women who want abortion access from low abortion or, God forbid, in the future, no abortion access states across the country and brings them to places like Oregon where they can have access to the abortion and reproductive health care that they want. I mean, Portland is the city that funded that Red House standoff. That was that North Portland house where police and protesters had that standoff. It was advertised on Instagram. All these people showed up and were protesting this red house being, the, the people inside of it being evicted. And it was, it was a family called the Kinney family. There was a man who was sort of spearheading the fundraising for not being evicted from this house. He went by the name William X. Nietzsche, and the home had previously belonged to his parents who lost the Kinneys. They lost the property through foreclosure, and William Nietzsche, or this Kinney man, embraces what's called the sovereign citizen movement. It's a super fringy belief system, 
and they say that they're above the law because they're indigenous. And Portlanders had raised money for that whack job to keep his house. That's the other thing is nobody takes the time to like evaluate whether anything is accurate because our media is so backwards in, in being objective. You know, I will say the Oregonian, though, was the one that uncovered the what was really going on here. This is from December 10, 2020. The Oregonian, a son's crimes spurred the financial problems that led family to lose North Portland House, now its center of activist occupation. And they really uncovered who, they did a pretty good job of uncovered who these people were. This William Kinney III pleaded guilty in 2002 to felony hit and run, third degree assault, and juvenile equivalent equivalent of criminally negligent homicide for causing the death of 83-year-old man Frederick Getz and seriously injuring Getz's wife, Anne. Kinney, who now goes by William X. Nietzsche, was 17. At the time of the wreck, his driver's permit had been suspended for driving without insurance. He was driving with three friends back to Cleveland High School after lunch when he was speeding, ran a stop sign, slammed his car into Getz's car. He was in the Oregon Department of Corrections after he became an adult. He was there until 2007. And the family was, they mortgaged their house. They refinanced their house to pay for his criminal defense lawyer. They paid $26,000 for his legal bills. And in a separate case, separate, he was sentenced to prison a decade ago for five and a half years. He was arrested in 2007 on illegal driving and drug allegations after police found him asleep in a van early one morning with crack and cocaine. He had a lot of cash and admitted he'd been driving and hitting the pipe. Authorities issued warrants for his arrest in 2008 and 2009 after he repeatedly skipped out on court dates. I mean, this is the person who people donated to buy his house for him. This guy. I think we could get women who need access to abortion where they need to go. I don't think that would be an issue here in this city. Because let's face it, it is, a tra- it is traumatic for anyone to go through nine months of pregnancy to give up a, a child. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a big burden that people shouldn't have to, have to shoulder. But again, if we had a robust sex education program in schools where girls could get access to long-term birth control, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. It's not like when I was a kid where your only options were the pill and you had to remember to take it every day. Now there's things that you get done once every six months. Well, and interestingly, Amy Coney Barrett, those arguments, those abortion arguments were interesting. She also talked about how not only is access to, not only is there more access to birth control in the sense that there are more methods uh, for women, but she also pointed out that there are now safe harbor laws where you can, you know, drop your unwanted kid off somewhere and you're not going to get in trouble. And, and yeah, those did, definitely did not exist. I did hear that the pro-choice lawyers kind of bombed the hearing um, and that, that she did point out they, they kept making the arguments about the burden on the women and kind of referring back to Roe. And then her response was like, women are in a very different position today than they were, you know, in the 50s and 60s when, you know, they couldn't get access to birth control. And there are now multiple women on the Supreme Court. 
if just the mere fact of that doesn't bring home for you how different things are yeah. for women in we're almost on 2022 I don't know what could I mean we've got yeah. Kagan we've got Sotomayor we've got Pony I mean say what you will about Trump it's a lady <laughs> he right. did appoint a lady Tony <laughs> Barrett argued by a woman lawyer there was not a women's bathroom in the Supreme Court building isn't that amazing so I mean we've come a long way baby you know so that's the other thing and that's what I would say also and that's what Glenn Larry and John McWhorter do such a good job of illustrating is like there has been progress there's been progress you know for women like trans stuff would have 10 years ago would have been people there would have been a backlash and protests and parents speaking at school board meetings and all of that I love that we have I have we have private bathrooms now in so many places uh which, which were made to accommodate people who are transgender, you know? All right, girl, I got to go. Well, thank you so much Great. for this, Jennifer. We appreciate you yep. coming back on, and we hope you come back again. I'd love to. Okay, talk to you later. Me. Okay, bye. bye.